Hello, hello, and welcome to the Mate Sessions with Cliff Central. My name is Mbalin Jamane, and with me, as always, is my partner in crime. <laughs> to Lisa Cindy, how are you, babe? That's such an introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. Okay, so let's not waste any time. Today, we wanted to do a show that addresses our sociology as South Africans and how it manifests in both our evolution as a society and our everyday relations as fellow humans. I, just to put this in context, was admittedly a bit slow to catch on to the Tipgate saga, but I, I have, and I kind of wish I hadn't because I've definitely lost some sleep. Um, this whole thing has, has messed with us in many ways and in different ways because Talisa and I don't always agree. Um, anyway, as much as we don't want to, we don't want to go into it because that thing was a full on knife fight. Um, and that's not how we roll, but we, we did want to do a show in general or rather in the general spirit of, of such things. Um, okay. So first and foremost, just to be clear, I am an individualist at heart, but I respect context. I don't believe in mob mentality, but I do believe in coexistence. I think in an ideal world, as individuals, we should be able to do whatever we want as long as it doesn't do harm to other human beings, which is where context and coexistence comes in. Because you do you and I do me, but with our environment and with others in mind. Unfortunately for most individuals, we're not able to draw the lines between our own freedom and the freedom of others. Right. And it's often said that one man's freedom starts where another's ends. Right. Because we're greedy and we always want more than our fair share. It's not ideal. It's not constructive, but it's true, particularly in a country where people's freedoms were systematically tiered in order of importance in what was largely a zero sum game. Some people benefited immensely and unjustly at the expense of others. And so we have a lot of residual inequality that we cannot ignore. We know this, though. I know we're tired of it, but let's not theorize and try to cheat our way out of it. This is our context. Be it social, political, economic or ideological, this country is not built on individual liberty. It's built on exploitation and systematic monopoly. It is dangerous, it is regressive, it is cowardice, and it is bullying. And it's not just white capitalist monopoly that I'm referring to. It is a culture of monopoly that I think is rampant in South Africa. It is true for the ANC and for much of the trade union movement as well. But as much as I don't think you can cure extreme monopoly with extreme monopoly... I don't think you can cure it with extreme individualism either. So we've got to find some middle ground between this individualist and collectivist mentality. Look, mobs, mobs are dangerous. 
However, the privilege of individualism, and I say the privilege because so many South Africans have been robbed of their agency. So the privilege of individualism... I'm so glad you said that, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's a privilege, yeah. It is. It's very much a privilege. And that privilege in this country is qualified because it was and is so often attained by mobs at the gross expense of others. And FYI, a mob can be anything from a gang of apartheid criminals to a ruling party with a two-thirds majority. It's all the same bullying, in my opinion. And that's something people will disagree with, and I can see, Lisa, you want to disagree with that, but it is. It's, uh, you know, it's it, it really isn't the same. I think, again, like you spoke about context, the weight of something, you know, with the history behind it and those sort of things, actually determines whether something is similar, even close to the same. So even though something is bullying... It really does still depend on the weight of the context behind that bullying, irrespective. No, I understand, but I think that I think that the the bullying done by the apartheid government, right, for instance, and the bullying done by um, corrupt African governments, for me, has similarities and. and in my opinion, it's almost worse if it's if, if if it's African governments. You know what I mean? I think I think corruption is corruption. Um, okay. Regardless, <laughs> no, no, please, please. Um, I I don't know. I think I think power manifests in very very different forms. Um, corruption manifests in very very different forms, and sometimes the extent to which something is exploited. Is at varying at varying degrees, but you can't get a free pass because you were a liberation struggle think, or movement think, if you're doing much of the same thing. I don't think it's about a free pass. I don't think people deserve a free pass, but I certainly think they don't deserve the same weight of judgment. And I think that's the problem that we're weighting things based on what a word means versus the gravity of what those actions actually. Yeah, you see, I think into. that's where context is is dangerous because we often use. Uh, context to to uh, as a ju- as a grounds for justification for for similar behavior so i'm saying like if you have one behavior one manifests itself in a white colonial regime and one manifests itself in an african liberation movement but it's the same behavior with the same outcomes for me I, but that's the thing. I don't even think it's the same outcomes to begin with. And also one is reactive versus the other one being very, um, you know, pr- deliberate. You know what I mean? So I just don't think the outcomes. Can yeah, be but the how same. I mean, honestly, how far can this uh, reactivity go again? I'm not justifying an it, eye for an eye is an eye. I'm not, I'm not justifying it. I am weighting them differently. And that weight is crucial because it determines how we approach these things because the outcomes are simply not the same. They're really not. They do not manifest in the same thing. Okay, but I'm talking... Because the fundamental intentions are not the same. Right. So we cannot treat them as the same thing, as equal weighted things. They just I think you're talking. I way. think you're talking more about intent than you are about outcomes. I'm saying there, there are situations as it stands in South Africa where and, and outcomes where I cannot differentiate between um, the actions of an apartheid regime and the the actions of uh, a liberation 
movement or uh, an, uh, an African government. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, we can have we can have <laughs> we can have this debate um, a little bit later. But anyway, I think in regards to these things, it's just it's something to be very mindful of. Um, it's something we need to be aware of before we pu- we punt and we differentiate our sexy uh, left wing versus right wing views. I think on either ends of the spectrum, you can have uh, corruption and you can have bullying and you can have monopoly. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, anyway, and so with that, <laughs> we wanted, uh, based on our show from the lens of domestic work in South Africa, to explore the lines between one man's liberty and another's, or one group's liberty and another's. So we've invited a sociologist for a much needed therapy session for South Africans. Tools, won't you introduce our guest? I am very, very honored to um, introduce this young, beautiful lady. Um, we we actually childhood friends. Our families are friends. Um, so we've known each other since the very good old days. Her name is Raggy. Um, and I used to know her <laughs> by another name. And similar to me, we've also sort of changed to our um, African Oh, names. by the way, Talisa used to be Florence. Oh, you got to do that, though. <laughs> Damn right. right. Okay, I'm going to expose you. Damn right. <laughs> Vanessa, Vanessa, I'm proud. I'm a slave name. <laughs> so, so Raggy now is um, an aspiring scholar and activist. She's currently a PhD candidate in sociology, and her work has been largely centered on identity politics, inequality, and socioeconomic development. She's a firm believer in bridging the gap between science, art, and the public. And in this regard, she's been active in um, communicating the social and political relevance of creative writing and literature to a number of audiences across the country. She's also presented her research to a number of international conferences. As a sociologist, one of the first concepts you're introduced to, as she says, is the sociological imagination. And simply put, this means that the individual can't be separated from the broader social and historical context in which he or she finds themselves in. So therefore, focusing on a group or even an, an individual gives you a broader understanding of the society as, as a whole. And in this light, Raggy is currently working on projects that emphasize telling stories of ordinary people and what the experiences can tell us about life in South Africa. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Let's um, start it off. And unfortunately, uh, none of the domestic workers that um, are a part of our project were willing to be part of this show in particular because they were afraid it would threaten their relationship with their employers. And we respect their livelihood first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And so that is a decision that we, we fully support, right, Tools? Absolutely. Uh, we did, however, talk to them extensively to develop questions uh, for the session. Um, and those are the questions we'll be addressing with Vanessa today. So... First of all, what to you, Vanessa, does the very existence... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm still calling you Vanessa. (laughs) She is side-eyeing me for days. (laughs) She is like, I am a mad supporter, girl. (laughs) I don't have time for that. Okay, I apologize, Raggy. No, look, look. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was not empathic. I've just never had a slave name. And so actually, I'm, oh. I'm speaking from a position of privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see what I mean? Empower. Yeah, owning your own like, name, girl. It's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's 
it's this, it's this um, privilege of individualism that we speak of. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm now like, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> shame. I'm being counter-revolutionary. Okay. Raggy. Mm-hmm. What does the very existence of the role of domestic worker say about us as a humanity? And secondly, so I found this role is treated and valued differently in different parts of the world. In the UK, for instance, housekeeping is a luxury and these women come at a, a real premium with tight contracts and regulatory frameworks. So what does our approach to domestic work in South Africa, and this is the second part of the question, um, what does our approach to domestic work say about us as a society? So I feel like we should address these separately, right? So first of all... Um, the existence of the role of domestic worker, what does that say about humanity? I think it's so difficult to begin talking about domestic workers without talking about domestic work as a concept itself, you know. And if you take things back, looking at why we had such an important movement, such as the feminist movement, domestic work is at the center of it all, you know. Mm. When you look at women's work and the valuation of the work that women do in the home, it is taken as nothing, whether you are a domestic worker or a housewife or just an employed mother who comes back to do a second shift at home. The work itself is not valued, you know. So from the roots, domestic work has been a problem. And the feminist movement itself wanted to place value on domestic work. So the fact that you're able to look after the kids and, you know, make sure your man looks good by the time he leaves to go to the <laughs> office. It isn't, would not be possible without... Isn't that taken for granted? Domi- yeah. You know? Yeah. It would not be possible if the work in the domestic fear had not been done first. Okay, so for me, what's interesting that you're saying is that because it's almost a domestic work is a byproduct in my mind from what you're saying of um, the work of, of nurture of mother of, of being, you know, mm. a female isn't mm. taken seriously enough to be accommodated in the workplace. And so it has mm. to create the separation of roles. And so what you almost have in a domestic worker is um, an extension or a, a, a split in the role of, mm. of mother, of wife, of, of nurturer, because these women um, wouldn't be able to do both. And and have careers as well. Is exactly. that what I'm hearing? You you become like the surrogate. You're mm. the surrogate wife. You're the surrogate mother. You're the one who makes sure that the home is able to stand in the absence of both parties, because we need that function. We need someone looking after our children. We need a hygienic home to come back to. You mm. know, and that is done at the expense mostly of the domestic worker's own home. Mm. So I mean. There's the issue of power as well. Mm. And one woman's emancipation, meaning exactly. the lack of impa- emancipation So it's what I was saying, right? Woman. Where one person's freedom starts, another's mm. ends. Mm. Oh. So I think the problem here is not really like what do we make of the role of domestic work in itself, but it's a question of value. The role of women. You know, what value do we place on the work that women are said to need to do, inverted and commas, yet- in the home? And yet, even though the the women of the houses have been stripped of that, um, you know, lesser role, mm. right, of cleaning and cooking and those sort of things, they're still not necessarily seen as any valuable, right? Even though those tasks went on, not necessarily associated to the women of the house anymore. Mm. Yes. 
that that's the fundamental problem mm. you know and what what um the fem- feminist movement tried to do is place value on that work in okay. monetary terms so if you had to leave your job as a man and stay home and do th- that kind of work how much would you charge to do that so this you is know? interesting to me because of the the amount that we pay to our domestic workers, which is a pittance, right? But really what it is, it's a reflection of on, the value we place on the work itself and, and, and of, of the role of, of, of females as nurturers, as mothers, as wives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there was even an entire argument that um, employers should be able to pay their domestic workers half their pay because without the domestic wow, worker, yes. it would be impossible for the woman to leave the house and do that work in yes. the first place. But you now, know, uh, uh, that's the value that what, work has. What is it saying about women, right? And how much we value ourselves? Okay, because I always think that's like first and foremost. How much do we value ourselves? What is it saying about us when we we go and we pursue careers? And we pursue success um, and wealth, right? Mm. Because fundamentally, we're uh, of the role that we're able to to delegate to the domestic worker. So we're able to earn now like a huge premium. What does it say about us as women when we leave this role behind, delegate it to somebody else, and then value it so little? That we pay them a pittance. That's the part that I find very interesting, that we pay it very little, Mm -hmm. which is such a reflection on Mm -hmm. how little we value it ourselves. How little we value it. And, like, I think what Mbali is saying is also a little bit problematic because it's not just an issue of what does it say about us as women. Mm. Because, you know, in saying that, you kind of suggest that it is the woman's role to do these things. And we are not biologically functioned Mm. to clean. Yes, we do have the biological privilege Mm. to be able to birth children, but does that locate you in that, that, you know? Does it it restrict you to the I guess what I was saying is, um, you know, this is a a role that women inherently understand. Mm. I don't think it's a role that women, I mean, men rather, can relate to as well. So I I was saying, I guess, from an empathic point of view, um, as women who who can identify with the work that these women do, uh, what does that say about our our levels of 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 empathy mm-hmm. um, and sisterhood? Uh, the second part was around uh, South Africa specifically as a society, and why I, why are these women valued least in a society like ours, where you know, like I said, I mean, friends of mine who come from the U.S. from the U.K. Uh, they find this a very odd condition mm. um, because, you know, for he- here it, it, it's such a it's such a standard thing. It's such a staple part of our, our society. But in those societies, um, like I said, it's a luxury. You know, these women are paid a premium to do what they do. I think here what you said earlier about context mm. comes into play greatly because um, you need to look at... In the first place, if you look just at the demographics and the demographic need in the UK, let's take France, for example, where people are literally incentivized to have families, to have children because the population is so low that you get assistance 
to be able to meet both your career so aspirations and also be able to manage the house. So that it's an incentive. Whereas here in South Africa, we are already struggling with the issue of overpopulation. And you need to look at the demographic of who does domestic work in South Africa. Right. Is it not the black woman, mm. the most undervalued woman in the world? Yes. You know, is it not the black woman? And on top of that, is it not in a lot of cases migrant women who fall even lower than the black woman straighter? You know, it's women from Lesotho, women from Zimbabwe. And that puts you in a particular position of not having any power. So, but why why do you think in in developed countries, um, in countries like France, like you mentioned, uh, there is this demographic situation where people are being incentivized to to breed, whereas here um, it's almost there's almost a disincentive. Mm. Mm -hmm. Girl overpopulation. We are trying to cut down how much, you know, um, our fertility rates to a certain extent because we do have our population is skewed somewhat in the sense that we largely young, Mm. you know. Yes. And the youth bulge. You know, Mm -hmm. the youth bulge. And in a few years, we do have a bit of a problem on our hands. So I'm not a specialist Mm. in population Mm -hmm. and, you know, so I can't say too much about that, but. Those are that's one of the things we can take into consideration. Okay. Um, so domestic workers' hours. We we spoke to them about their hours, um, and and whether it was you know sort of feasible and realistic or not, and you know the extent to which um, employers are allowed to to um, you know take of their time, and and for the most part they said that their working hours are from seven to four o'clock, right, which is sort of a normal eight-hour workday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the occasional tea break and lunch break. But they also speak of how those hours aren't really upheld and sometimes they have to start at half past five. So it's almost like when the family wakes up, they wake up with the family and they um, often still work after six o'clock. So after Mm -hmm. the family's finished, then they still have to do the washing up, maybe helping kids with homework, those sort of things, putting a child to bed. So what does it say of our... um, ever busy society if we need someone to to shadow such a large part of our everyday lives um and do you think that the ladies the so it's the domestic workers do you think that they could be used as a source of routine establishment for families um so she essentially allows their lives to run like clockwork and anything that's out of place is like a glitch in their well-planned means of survival in a world that's just asking so much of them at all times mm. Hmm. So this is slightly similar, but I think we're trying to interrogate because um, we spoke about uh, the role of uh, of feminism and, and and of women in creating this 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 condition and the role of patriarchy. Uh, but I think she's talking kind of broadly, like you were saying, about routine establishment. Mm. Mm. And I think you know, for me, it also ties into um, you know the objectification of people to turn them into machines or technology you know yeah Yeah. so that yeah so i mean yes so what role do they play in the machine yeah Mm. you know i think we'd have to approach this question by looking at the issue of space you know it all begins because in most cases you'll have that in instances where domestic workers live in the 
space in which they work, you mm. know. So now you're mixing the work, the space of work with the personal space. And the domestic worker is seen as a member of the family, inverted commas. Big inverted commas. Big inverted <laughs> commas, yes. I mean, that's where you get terms like being called auntie, you know, as though you're part of the household. So the work that you do that is extra, like waking up when the family wakes up way before your working hours and doing overtime on a daily basis is not compensated for and it's just seen as your contribution to family life. It's something you do for your own kids, except the difference here is this is not your family and this is a workspace that is turned into a personal home, you know. So you literally are there to make sure everyone is able to meet their requirements get to where they need to be on time except in most cases they are not compensated for it you know and that that that's a huge problem so how do you establish boundaries you know in it's in conditions so closely linked to each other that sometimes you can't tell the difference between the two it all begins with the one thing a lot of us get the moment you walk into your workplace which is a contract that clearly states what your job requirements are right? And also what your working hours are. And once that's written down and signed, you're a, you actually have a solid case, you know? Shuck, so we're going to talk about this so much more later on. But what it's actually highlighting to me at the moment is that inherently this is not a professional role. So it's, it's very not. hard to govern professionally. I mean, how many domestic workers do you know that actually have a contract? Yes. Exactly. Just and told, what you said about auntie... Do you know what I mean? And yes. what you said about, you know, being like a pseudo member of the family, even though you're not treated the, as such, exactly. is as us actually acknowledging that, you know, this is not a professional role. Mm. Um, and actually a question that I, I want to now bring in here is, is that of like guilt on our part, right? Um, I've always speculated that part of the distance and the breakdown in the employer domestic worker relationship as well as all the secrecy that surrounds it yeah. is caused by shame on our part as employers. Uh, so I want to know how, how true do you think that is? Do you think that uh, although we're, we're driven as employers by self-interest, that deep down we know that what we expect of these women is not, is, is, is not a job. It's, 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 it's very personal. And it crosses a, a certain line. Could that at least be part of why we don't want to acknowledge? It's like what you were saying about the mechanization of what they do tools. Mm -hmm. Is this at least part of why we, we don't acknowledge the, their, their presence or, or their legitimacy as, as fellow humans? Well, I think that's, it's such a complex question. Like I'd need to get clearer detail on what exactly you're referring to when you talk about secrecy. So I'm talking about, um, you know, we've, we've really struggled to get employers to speak on this topic, mm. right? Um, cause there seems to be a level of shame well, when you approach them. Well, we're, we're assuming maybe. No, yeah, that's what I assume. That's what yes. I see. Yes. Right? Is that they're, at the same time, it's a combination, like I'm saying, of self-interest and shame. Mm. Self-interest because they don't, they don't want to threaten the role. Mm. 
you know, in the job that the, these women do. Mm. But a level of shame because they don't, they don't necessarily want, and for me, this is actually, uh, the bigger part of it. They, they don't want you to, to, to know, to speak to a domestic worker and to, to know necessarily what is going on. Mm. And I mean, I'll speak for myself and I'll literally lay myself bare here. As much as I feel like I've been very good to my domestic worker, we were raised that way, you know, to, to really treat them like a part of the family. Um, but we, we definitely haven't done that in absolute terms. And so because, you know, for instance, our domestic worker has never worn a uniform. Our domestic worker stayed inside the house, mm. you know, um, they never ate anything different than we did. Right. But at the same time, they still had to clean our mess. They had to, um, wash, uh, they had to wash underwear at times, you know, they had to do, do and, very very intimate things that like now I look at in retrospect and think you know shucks that was incredibly shameful but whatever whenever that happened whenever I created a mess let me put it this way whenever I created a mess that my domestic worker had to clean that I wasn't proud of that would create a distance between her and I so I would Mm. try and avoid her the whole day Mm. you know what I mean and Mm. I I wouldn't be able to look her in the eye if I knew I, I was expecting her to do something um, that crossed a certain line. Mm. And so I'm saying, could that, could that be a part of why we prefer to treat them as though they don't exist to, to, to ignore them is be, is because there's a, a level of shame that we yeah. feel. I think, yeah, it goes back to what, what I was saying about the linking of the working space and the personal space. People tend to keep the family and the personal life rather private, you know, you only air out what's pretty about home, you know, no one will necessarily deliberately go and talk smack about what's happening in the house, you know? Mm. So in those cases, I think we also try to only highlight the fact that, yeah, I didn't make my domestic worker wear a uniform, but those intimate details that you speak of now we keep that hidden. But I also think um, to a large extent, we need to make a distinction between making your domestic worker feel part of the family mm. and making her feel like she is an employee in the house because that is essentially what she is. And when you make her part of the family, you extend certain And you create a false roles. expectation. Exactly. Okay. You create certain roles like... She will, your mother would wash your underwear. (laughs) Your mother would wash your underwear and probably complain about it. But she'd do it because she's your mother. But as a worker, that is not your role. And if you do not put her in this, you're part of the family. It's less awkward for her to say, look, but this is not my job. And I, I actually just, want to add this question because I think it just fits in really, really well with that. But it, 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 because I take great fascination in the objectification of human beings because I see that happen on a very regular basis and I also see it as an architect in space happen all the time. Um, and, and I just want us to address that a little bit, you know, the mechanization of these women and how essentially you can face someone because you don't see them, hmm. right? Because you've, um, made them in the, an image of something that is not comparable to you, that is not relatable mm. to you, right? And and so, because the ladies s- 
spoke to us about how they're never really allowed to stand still and they always have to look busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes they'll act busy if they have mm-hmm. to, you know. Um, and so I just want to touch on that a little bit, whether, you know, the ladies being in constant motion represents that mechanization of the woman, of the woman and the moment they stand still, they are a person that they have to see, they have to look them in the eye and they have to address them, right? Mm. They're human. Um, where does that come from? <laughs> you know, our, our ability to, to so easily find ways to objectify individuals. Mm. You know, I think it, I want to link it to Karl Marx and what he spoke about, you know, when he was talking about industrialization of work and the concept of alienation. You know, mm. making people so divorced from the, you literally need to just do your job. You know, you, you cease to be a person with aspirations or with a desire to fit into a social space. You're just there to do your job, you know? So I think it's a problem with a lot of workspaces. You need to constantly look like you are doing what you are being paid for mm. because time is money, mm. you know? So if your employer, and it's, it's not just in the home, it's not just domestic you're groups, but generally, right. if your employer walks past, you grab something, <laughs> you look like... No, it's true, and we've all done it, right? Yeah. And I mean, we all know, we all know from experience that nobody can work Eight, Eight hours, hours. <laughs> non-stop. Let's it's, be it's serious. Li- li- like, okay. let's just be serious. Yeah, it's said that we're only mm. productive for three of those eight hours. Do you know what I mean? But everyone also, Truly like, productive. it's the gospel. Yeah, Truly that's productive. the gospel. But also everyone has their own um, kind of work ethic, right? Some people mm. work in bulk. Mm. I know I'm productive. I can be productive, like, for probably uh, five straight hours and then I'm done. Mm. Right? But that has to be timed very well. Mm. And then I can take maybe five, ten minutes break. Mm. In between, most people need um, much longer breaks between mm. productivity. Mm. Okay, but no one is productive eight hours a day. And as much as we know that, it, it's like you're saying, it is this culture of mechanization, and this, <laughs> you know, is a whole other conversation about like how machines are essentially replacing humans. Um, and yet we're becoming those machines. And, exactly. <laughs> yes. So you know what I mean. Well, mm. It's this like very perverted thing that's going on. But, um, yeah, I think increasingly, like you're saying, um, people are having the expectations of human beings that they have of, 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 of machines. Of machines. Which is like crazy to me. Yes. You know what I mean? Because we were supposed to make machines more human. That was the idea behind the personal computer and everything that we do was like, you know, how can we make a, a machine, um, serve a human being? But now it's like clearly, you know, being perverted somehow, mm-hmm. at least I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, we're on, we're on Facebook. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I promise you, social media and personal communication probably takes up three hours of the average employee's day. And we all know that. And probably the boss does it as well. But we've gotten very good at this, like, looking busy, like mm. you're saying. Mm. Yeah, click every three three seconds. Exactly. And I mean, yeah. that's why you have companies like... I don't think I'm allowed to say company names on radio. But you have progressive companies that will have something like a nap room. Google. Yes. There we go. I said it. Are you allowed to say that? No, I didn't even know she was saying. I'm speculating. We don't know. know. I'm speculating. I don't know who she's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Google's a verb now. You Google. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That have nap spaces that have 
food i love food they have food <laughs> you know it's acknowledging the human aspect and of your employees are they you know? are those spaces as productive as i think sometimes more. even more productive yeah. mm. because you acknowledge a person as a social being first you know as a person with you are not as productive if you're restless mm. or if you feel like Dude. someone is watching over your <laughs> so I've, your shoulder literally i've written an entire piece on this and actually like just to give a personal anecdote uh, probably the day that I decided to quit, I won't say which job. I've had not that many, so it probably won't be hard for people to guess. Anyway, anyone who knows me. <laughs> uh, my director called me into the office one one day because he didn't like my posture in my chair. Oh, <gasps> Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was like, ah, you know what the thing is? It wasn't, it wasn't about my output. It wasn't about my performance. But he was like, you always just look really comfortable. <laughs> you look That's happy <laughs> you just you know what i mean you, you look you look really comfortable and i don't think it's giving the right impression and like sometimes you go for walks and i mean you've been seen going for walks and sometimes sitting in the courtyard working and it, look i know it's not about your performance actually you know and i'm actually sorry to have to say this but it's just it's 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 raising some issues around uh, your perceived productivity very interesting Mm. Mm. but you know what i i actually want to find out um because sometimes when you when you offer as a boss when you offer your employees trust they can take advantage of it right Mm. um and i've done that before with with some of my bosses um and i wonder then how do you find the balance so so you grant them their humanity right you understand that as humans they have certain human requirements but in the same breath how do you mitigate, you know, the possibility mm. of someone taking advantage of that trust? Mm. Um, isn't that the reason why we have sanctions and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, disciplinary codes and all of mm. that? Mm. Because, I mean, the reason we put those things in place is for the mere fact that it's human nature to try to overstep boundaries and, you know, to step out of line sometimes. Mm. So... In the event that that happens, you deal with the situation. But I don't think you should generally approach someone from the position of, I don't trust you, therefore you have to Agreed. do this. And, this. and on that point of trust, I think brings us to our next question, right? Um, we are, hear a lot from these women about the trust issues their employers have. For instance, uh, that they're always suspected First of theft, and I'm talking about now domestic workers, right? They're always suspected first of theft when something is misplaced, and then they're made to look for it, and when they find it, there's not necessarily an apology. Mm. There's just kind of an awkward silence. So you found it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or that they're not allowed to receive visitors on the property, or that they're they're actually afraid to be seen with other domestic workers because... They're then interrogated as though they were planning something or that. And this one really like guts me. I mean, they all got me, but this one really guts me. Even when they're sick, they're suspected to be carrying a deadly disease that they could spread to the family. Okay. And so I feel like South Africa in general is plagued by 
trust issues. And so that's why I want to use this as, as an example, as a mm. case study mm. to kind of interrogate our, our broader society. What does this sort of suspicion that we have toward one another or among one another do to a human and, and to human relationships? And at the same time, and for me, this is like mind blowing. This is what messes with me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if these women are trusted with the care of employers' children, the maintenance of the household, the preparation of meals, such sensitive things, mm-hmm. how can this extreme suspicion mm-hmm. and extreme trust coexist? You know, I need to refer you to a movie which changed my view on on life. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it called? <laughs> you <can't. laughs> that was such an anti climate. No, we were literally sitting with beta <laughs> yeah. breaths. Yeah. Um, Will it come to you? Something about bees. Oh, 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 oh. Um, the life of bees. The, yeah, no. no. The life of I don't know. No. Um, is it with Dakota Fanning? The the little girl. Is it with Queen Latifah? Queen Latifah. Yes, yes, yes. The secret life, life of bees. The secret it. life yes. of bees, so ladies and gentlemen, we have it. <laughs> if you're not. <laughs> I agree with you. Yes. So, yes, I need to refer you to a movie, The Secret Life of Bees. Mm. There is a line in that movie that has stuck with me. I watched that in high school. And I think at that point, I understood the fundamental problem with racism. Right. Oh, wow. This woman asks, how can you hate me so much? But trust me with your children, mm. you know. You literally raise families mm. for these people. Mm. You make their meals. You're so involved in their intimate spaces, but you never belong. Mm. And I feel like it's, you know, when you talk about domestic work and when you talk about South Africa in general, you cannot divorce it from race, from class, from gender. Although some people would like to think so. Uh-huh. You, know? you, you can't. You can't have a, a conversation about South Africa without talking about those things. And unfortunately, domestic workers are black, bottom of the ladder. It's considered one of the lowest social classes you could be in, bottom of the ladder. And they're women. Mm. You know, it's a triple burden. And it's so unfortunate that because of how, where society is, in South Africa, the fact that black people are at the epitome of poverty Mm. and a lot of the times have to resort to crime because of the living conditions that exist in the country. Obviously, when something goes missing, it has to be the black woman in the house because... She has a poor family back home to send your T-shirt to, doesn't she? But do you know how funny that is to me, right? Because you've got South Africans who will not acknowledge that crime and not in absolute terms, Mm. but in large part is due to an economic condition. But at the same time, the reason that they suspect you is because you come from nothing. Mm. It's like so, it's, it's, and they so keep contradictory. You at nothing. The wages keep you at nothing, you know? And I also, I'm a firm believer in not painting pe- people as merely victims. Yeah, right? sure. Yes. So a lot of the time, yes, domestic workers do steal things. Yes, they do take some it, is things. Is it a lot home. of the times? Is it? 
and I, you know, before this, I went and spoke to a lot of people, and it happens. It does happen. But, yeah, yeah, no, no. But I'm not disputing that it. I don't happens. think it's a. I'm, I'm wondering. I don't about know if I go as far as, as, far as a, a, lot a lot of the time. Let's yeah. say sometimes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It does happen that they do steal something or take something home, but. In those instances, it's usually a form of agency, a form of fighting back against what you're That's constantly faced with. Wow. That's interesting. Every single day, you go to this house and you see what we call black aspiration. So this is what you. you know? So this is the question around like, what does it do to the relationship? What does it do to right. the relationship? Yeah. Every day you're faced with, they have this and this and this that they probably don't even value. You know, mm. it's probably a t-shirt that is hardly worn, yes. that is just thrown there. And you know that I know someone who would appreciate this. So maybe they wouldn't notice if mm. it went missing. So a lot of the times it's not because, you know, there's... Out of spite. Or... Out of spite. But it's out of need, out of necessity that, you know what? Be- you know, I mean, what I wonder and what is also a great interest of mine with regards to crime are things that are turned into crime even though it isn't right mm. so um it's it's almost and I, I see this a lot with with american conditions with things like the war on on drugs right mm. um and how certain actions are criminalized that are not criminal mm. right and and it's it's a way to perpetuate the idea of the black man as criminal yes as bad as whatever 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 right yes. and then i wonder um about that in our society as well, where the certain things are criminal just because a lot of the things that poverty needs to do becomes criminalized so that they do not self-sustain or do not become resilient um, versus things that are actually truly crime, you know? I have a problem with this, and it's similar to the problem that I raised earlier in my introduction around, you know, um, I guess what we did was we... We spoke about classes of bullying, you know, sometimes it's reactive and sometimes it's deliberate. Uh, so sometimes it's justified and sometimes it's, it's not. And I think this is a very dangerous space. It's a very, it, it's a difficult line to draw because mm-hmm. what you're That's saying, so it's a very <laughs> sensitive line. But it needs to be because, said, I think. Yeah, <laughs> no, sure. Because what you're, <laughs> You can do one of two things, right? Because we all understand that, you know, certain crimes can be reactive and they can be out of need. We can give every criminal a free pass, right? No, no, it might, yes. Doesn't say it's one, <laughs> no, I'm saying it's one of, yeah. it, it's one of two things, mm. right? But, but I'm not saying that reactive crime is not crime. I'm just saying that some crimes are not crimes, right? Yeah, but, but we can can't, we can't, example? but for me, for me, uh, to be honest, you know, it boils down you know, people talk about intent and outcomes, and I kind of am in two schools of thought. I really think intent is important, but I think in this case, I'm going to advocate for outcome. If somebody is killed yeah. in a crime, mm. right, a violent mm. crime, mm. whether that was uh, justified or not, whether that was an assassination, right, by a, a like a, a corrupt government, you know, I don't know, some CIA agent or whatever happens, or whether that was out of... Um, that, that comes out of a robbery, a violent robbery, right? That perhaps comes out of people who are, are desperate. Mm. You know, the, the mere fact that there is, at the end of that, the end to that is, is, is that a life is taken. Yeah. Right? For me, um, 
I can understand. I think in that, in that, from that perspective, those things to me are weighted equally. See, I'm not, I'm not talking about those sort of extremes, right? I think there's certain things that are very clearly crime, right? But then I'm, I'm referring to things like a young black man <laughs> standing in the street. And that it's literally as simple as that in America, right? Um, unless they're telling us a completely different story because we know how media can manipulate us and those sort of things. But sometimes a black man walking in a hoodie becomes criminal, mm. right? Mm. Or a black man smoking weed makes them get life in jail, right? Mm. Those sort of things. So you're talking about suspicion. Yes. You're talking about suspicion then being criminalized. Yes, but but it's a criminalization of... Of the criminalization of black bodies. Of identity. Yeah, okay, so it's not the criminalization of outcomes. It's yes, the criminalization yes, yes. of of identity. Mm. Yes. There I can yes, agree with you. Because then then everything the everything can be criminal. There I can agree That's with you. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yes. So you're like almost you're guilty without being proven innocent. Absolutely. Mm. Right. Fair. Mm. I mean, rather you're guilty before. Yeah. What was the right. <laughs> <laughs> You get what we mean. You're guilty. Hold on. No. Come on. Come on. We have to get this right. This is this is horrible. Um. Guilty. You're guilty unless. Proven innocent. That's yes. the one. Yeah, but I mean, as a poor person, how likely are you to be proven innocent? You know, because the, uh, innocence is in a way also a privilege, you know, because you have to be able to access that ability to be proven innocent. So you're more than likely to remain guilty if you ever even walk into a courthouse, you know? But the way our prisons are full it takes so long for you to get to court Mm. and so all you remain is a criminalized body hmm yo (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no this idea of a criminalized body sham um yeah that's a separate problem i think yeah it's a topic all on its own (laughs) it is but but i think it does transcend into what a black woman is perceived in the house in Mm -hmm. the home um i definitely think that she fills that role in some way as well i think it it ties in also to who is allowed to visit because sometimes it's not it's not necessarily her that is suspicious but all the other bodies associated with her yeah you know yes because in truth not a lot of female bodies are considered criminal unless you're considered or suspected to be a prostitute or something. Hmm. Women are not too often. Yeah. It's a lot of times black men mm. that are perceived to be criminals. And unfortunately, we are associated with black men who yes. happen to be our husbands, who happen to be brothers. our sons, our brothers, mm. you know. And that's where the issue of visitation comes in. Mm. Who is allowed to visit you? Mm. For how long? So can I Where? can I flip this thing around? Because I always think there's a flip side to a coin. <laughs> and I'm hopping on because like, I really believe this. Look, so what we were saying earlier, okay, so now we're talking about suspicion. The, the, the criminalization of suspicion, right? Mm. Um, and I want to say to you, I want to bring it back to what we were saying earlier on about uh, a mob mentality and a mob being anything from, you know, uh, a group of uh, apartheid criminals to um, uh, to a party, a leading party, a ruling party with a two thirds majority. Right. That's what I was saying earlier on. And then you argued with me because you were like, well, you know, it's not the same bullying. 
And I was like, yes, but it is. And I think that, and I'm not talking now about like hard crime, but I'm talking at, at least about oppression as, as a crime against humanity. Let's talk about oppression. Yeah. Right. For me, a white man, regardless of his background, regardless of his, his, his stance, um, will always be suspected first of being oppressive. I think it's harder for us to, to, to wrap our minds and to, 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 to come to terms with the idea of a, a, a black government or a black man filling the role of oppressor. I, I think that the perception is not that they are oppressors or oppressive, but that they are part of a system that places them in a position that oppresses, whether they know it or not. That's what I think. I think I'd counter that altogether. I think mm. from the get-go, black men, and that's why I find black masculinities so interesting, black men have been painted to be oppressive people. Mm. In general, oppressive. I think um, Janssen. Just looking yes. at the Janssen case, <laughs> yeah. that is, it's it's such a, a okay. But it's no, a prime I'm, example. I'm talking of, about systematic oppression. Hey, mm. I'm talking at that level of like, and at this the is level where I made the government. This is where I made the comparison between a corrupt a corrupt black government and a corrupt white regime. I think with so similar outcomes at the core. What do you, when you think of African governments, right? Mm. Does not the word corruption always, is it not always linked to African governments? Yes. You know, mm. Af- the downfall of Africa and the African economy is always linked to corrupt government mm. because it's being ruled by black politicians. I think from the onset, from Blackness and black power has been problematized. Shucks. It's not a new, it's not a new thing. I, I'm just, I'm just quickly wondering then what is your perception of the, the white body versus the black body, right? In, in terms of what, um, Bali's referring to, um, in relation to oppression. So what do you think the white man represents versus the black man? I think to this day, to a large extent, in a lot of our, our minds, the white man represents order. Think oh, about it. Order. Oh, Corrupt order. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So for me, it's levels. Okay. So at a, at a, at a, like, at a goon level, mm-hmm. right? Black governments are always accused of that kind of goonery, that kind of criminalized corruption. But if we think about now corruption at a systemic level, which is for me what colonialism was, it was. You know what I mean? And a lot of what happens in the United States seems very much above board. It's mm. it's orderly, like you're saying, but it's corruption at a very, very high level. But it's also considered to be more acceptable because mm. t- I was in um, my home country, the DRC, just yeah. two years ago. And so often I heard people talk about how the country would still be in good standing if the white man was still there, knowing full well that the looting of resources absolutely and i mean so much i mean went trevor, wrong Noah, because, trevor Noah jokes about it all the time but you anyway, know go ahead yeah but the fact that we think you know what 
even with all his corruption, even with all his slavery, all his oppression, if the white man was here, <laughs> things would be better. Yeah. Tells you what kind of oppression we prefer. But why then oh. don't we think, why, why then don't we think, why don't we ever suspect black governments of being capable of corruption on that very systemic indoctrinated level? I don't think we plan like that. I don't know. <laughs> That's me. I just don't think we plan but I am like seeing, that. So I am seeing things culturally in this country, politically, from a cultural perspective, taking hold. Where I look and I think about 10 years from now, 50 years from now, if this situation continues, mm. I can see how this corruption becomes systematized. I don't see it becoming systematized. I see it as individuals, right, gaining a lot of authority, a lot of power, a lot of wealth. But I don't see it as a very deliberate attempt to make it this new. But you don't think it can be. You don't think it can be systematized. At some point, I, I put, and, if we and don't again, guard we will, against it. We will go back to the sociologist, the, the specialist. But I, I personally don't see it as that because it was very, very strategic. You know, the mm-hmm. the, the white version of this. I think, yes. I think we give, and this is a conversation I have with a lot of people. Let's not have the illusion mm-hmm. that just because it's a black man, oppression is not deliberate. Thank you know? You. Thank you. Just <laughs> because thank you. black people are intellectual beings they're highly and well. it's insulting for you me know? sorry just to interrupt you <laughs> and this is getting heated but it is, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> it is insulting to me yeah. if you think that a black man's corruption a black man's you oppression know. is somehow inferior to no, a white no, man's no, oppression not inferior different different reactive but that it I cannot become as 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 sophisticated no, 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 and no, as con- it's, convoluted it's not about the level of sophistication I think it can manifest into something different because the way that that we constructed to begin with. But that is excuse, that different. excuse, that excuse, that free pass that they're getting it's here not is a what. Free pass. Okay, that's fine. But that that idea, that preconceived idea, that it, it's strategic, it's reactive, whatever you're saying, is what's actually going to empower it to be all the more pervasive I, and invasive. I absolutely, don't agree. <laughs> I I agree. Thank you. I think. <laughs> I think a lot of the times we have this idea that the black man is the utopia of the perfect humanity and it's not the case. And it's, you know, he's the victim, we, the perpetual victim. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not rationalizing it based on the idea of their victimhood. Okay, that's fine. Let's just, I'm not. Let's, okay, okay. I fair. think, I think, um, when a system works. It's a gross assumption. <laughs> I <All right>. apologize. <laughs> <laughs> when a system works and it works in your benefit, a lot of the times you will choose your own upkeep over the upkeep of another. If it benefits you, you'll take that role. Isn't that human nature that you're talking about? Though? Exactly. It's universal, I'm right? Not There's a I'm tipping point for I'm anyone. Convinced. There is I a think, tipping point for anyone. I think if you were given the opportunity to actually search deep, and it's so unfortunate that history is written by those in power, but if you were to search deep to black history, right, to African history, and find out exactly what what kingdoms we took over and how we yeah. did it, yeah. I'm sure we'd find some interesting um, ideas there on how to take over a system, how to employ a system for your benefit, you know? Absolutely. I mean, the the kings and chiefs that sold our African brothers into slavery, they did not take 
other Africans <laughs> smuggle them into a ship. It was a transaction. And this is the thing That'd for me. True. Black supremacy is coming, which is why it's, it's like so much more scary for me. It's coming from a, a place of, of, of martyr and of victimization. And for me, something that comes mm. from that point with any kind of sinister, um, agenda is going to be that much more pervasive because we won't see it coming. Mm. But do you think the movement is more sinister than it is productive? I'm scared. I'm always like, look, this is my thing. It's like, I can't, I, I, I never really speak for now because it's a hot mess, but I will say, <laughs> no, but I will say, I always speak for now in terms of the fact that like, look, we're not, we're not doing enough uh, reflection. We, we're not doing uh, enough. Uh, do, we ha- do we have time for reflection? Cause I think, I think, um, I mean, I, as I hear myself say this, <laughs> I realize the flaws in that question, but do we have time for it? Because I, I find but if that we a lot of don't the make times, time for it. If we don't make time for it, we're just going to repeat history. And a I, lot of I what agree, we're doing I, as black people at the yes. moment rides on the coattails mm. of white oppression but i find that a lot of the times all that blackness and people of color are doing is literally explaining their existence but we have in, a responsibility as the underdogs feel, as right? the victims to yes. be better we absolutely do with a lot of weight right there's the i don't know i think the extent of the weight right that is on blackness to at all times prove themselves at all times justify the existence that sort of thing mm. there's there's quite a weight to that 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 takes a lot of times that that takes up a lot of time and so, that distracts so we, and yeah, that distracts right but, so we're so busy i mean that's what i that's what i find about almost every movement right we're so busy explaining it at and all refining times. it by the way in the process yes but it's it's time consuming it's time consuming and i would rather end up with a movement that is self-reflective self-aware and that is not doomed to repeat mistakes of the past Mm. that takes its time i'd rather end up with a movement like that that actually rises above whatever has happened and doesn't seek to right a wrong simply by taking an eye for an eye Mm. but by actually but I, I setting but a I think, whole new, raising the bar for humanity. But I, I prefer yes. that kind of movement. But I the think kind of movement that is uh, chasing some kind of urgency. But I think to interpret the violence as an eye for an eye is also unfair, because I don't think that's what it is, either. Um, you, you, you and I always uh, disagree on this because <laughs> I think it is. I think it is very I really much. Don't an think I, it is. No, but if I think no, about, I think, I, I think sometimes the, the, traje- sometimes the trajectory to... of black success, mm. right, has its roots in, like I was saying earlier, trying to cure one extreme with another. So trying to replicate what was done to us. If your mother disciplines you and you're frustrated as hell right you know you did something wrong but you are livid as hell that your mother caught you or that your mother did something to you and you take a chair and you throw it at something right that is a form of violence but does is that also a reflection on the hurt that you want to inflict on her is it a a reflection of a hate that you feel for her no but and i think honestly i think that 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 violence manifests in very different forms it is not just one thing it is not just the inverse but i think i think that there are those of us that have the benefit of not being that reactive anymore so okay so if i think about okay so we can't actually Actually, now we can't blanket blackness 
just right. like, we can't black violence. Uh, exactly. We can't blanket it, right? Yes, and cannot. so there are, there are still cannot. people in such dire straits where I can, I, I can understand the argument that, you know, a lot of their actions are reactive. But then there are people who, you know, have, there, there are black people who are privileged. Yeah. Who I think have the time to contemplate and to reflect. And I don't, I, I don't see among them enough, enough self-awareness and, and, and rising above. But do they have that time or does black tax come into play as well? And you, no, see, the taxes on, on the system. taxes on the yes, taxes. But that is exactly what it is. That is the problem. I mean, we talk about it as if that's not a thing, as if we should, we should just get over it or now we're in a position of privilege. Therefore, I'm not, den- I'm not denying, I'm not being. denying the taxes. I'm denying the fact that we're using them constantly as an excuse. No, I, that is not an excuse. It is simply factual that that is a part of the factors that determine our progress as humans. Yeah, but I'm saying that if we have, I'm saying it's so easy as a black person to get away with so many things because you get certain free passes, even if you're aware. Who's, and I think I think so many people are these free passes by simply making that statement. You're assuming that it is one pass and another pass and another. By making that statement, we're not. I think saying we're giving that ourselves free let, passes. Let them be. We're saying, listen, this is an actual. I think thing we're far we too forgiving. To I think we're far too forgiving of our own elites and our own leaders. I honestly think so, and I think it's dangerous. And that's uh, for me. That's like uh, enough. I just, said. I just think I it's too, too much of a blanket you, but statement. But I also think that we also. A bit too condemning as well. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's why it's, I think, it's a bit yes. of both because, as Mbali is saying, our leaders need to be made accountable. There I are agree. some things that are just ridiculous. You do not let things like that slide. And I don't need to mention anything, mm. you know, mm. you do not let things like that slide. But in the same breath, you need to think about I mean, we're such a new democracy for one, you know, there's still a lot that we are learning. A lot, a lot of systematic injustices that were inherited that we need to let go of. Mm. So, and also, like, we need to, the, we also need to debunk where are we getting our information from? Yeah. Like, who owns the media? What exactly? That's what is fine. the intention behind but, uh, the the stories that are portrayed? What stories are hidden? Sure. What successes no, are hidden? Enough. No, and um, that's fine. That's that's good and well, but you know, in in my opinion. If you take the ANC government as it stands, and our president himself, you can not tell me that is a man that is absolved of intent. That is, and with that, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> intent is just not enough, is all I'm saying. Okay, <laughs> what of that happened? Um, and I think that that's a wrap. Uh, that brings us to an end of part one of this conversation. Just as a closing point, I'd like to quote a, a philosopher who said, a great many people think they are thinking when they are simply rearranging their prejudice. I'm realizing that more and more um, as something that, that I do. And something that we all do. And I think it's important to constantly ask ourselves the question. Because I certainly will. Um, and with that, Lisa, any last words? I'd actually like to pass it off to Raggy. Um, is there any final I'm words? Not good at Power to you the can people. Sing. Power to the people. Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay then. Um, um, it, but but it has been an absolute pleasure, Raggy, and I look very very forward to the next conversation. Yeah, shucks, you're you like so no, seriously, me. you're such incredible value add. Because yeah. Talita and I just speculate and we fight. And actually, like I said <laughs> in the Shout beginning, each other, yeah. exactly. And like I said at the beginning <laughs> of this conversation, um, about you know. Tipgate. What, what is that? Yeah, Tipgate. Yes. I, I like the name. Like, like <laughs> I said about Tipgate, look, we both were troubled mm. by the thing, but probably for different, for different reasons, reasons because yeah. we don't always agree. Yeah. Um, but that's important. And thank you guys as always for joining us on the main sessions with Cliff Central. Please tune in next week for part two of our conversation. Look after yourselves and have a good one. Cliff Central. The revolution. Something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.